Good morning. My name is Ben. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 39, verses 6 through 12. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Amber Davis. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians six sixteen through 20. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex as much, is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one. Since we, since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever, the kind of sex that can never become one. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies, these bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love for becoming one with another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works, so let people see God in and through your body. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Hannah Munger. Please stand for the gospel reading found in John 1 through 5 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came to be, into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the Word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. The word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, how's your pulse after those readings? It's no secret that um, Christians have a different way of thinking about sex and morality or, if you'd like, a sexual ethic. Christians have a different sexual ethic than the world. That's no secret. But sometimes what is not as well known or not as talked about is the fact that Christians have an entirely different view of the body. And before we can even get to talking about sex, which we will next week as we get into 1 Corinthians 7, which just happens to fall on Valentine's Day weekend (laughs) by no planning of my own. (laughs) Before we can even get to talking about sex and singleness and sex and marriage, Paul sets this whole chapter up in 1 Corinthians 6 about bodies. 
And it's actually interesting because if you were to ask yourself to just stop for a moment and think about the lines that you hear from people around us, maybe from friends, maybe in conversations, maybe from TV shows or movies, you'll pick up lines that are maybe something like this. Well, it's my body. I can do what I want with it. It's my body. You don't have any business talking about what I do in private. No doubt you've heard something like this. Or maybe phrases like, I'm not harming anyone. There are worse things in the world. Don't worry about this. Why are Christians so fussy? Or maybe a phrase like, you know what? How bad can it be? It feels so good. So why are you making such a big deal of this? Don't you want me to be happy? You've heard this. Unfortunately, when we turn to the church to say, all right, church, what do we say in response to this? Oftentimes what we hear is, sex bad, sex bad, la, 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 la. <laughs> or, or we hear, oh, uh, uh, body, uh, talk about bodies. I don't know, the, the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about bodies. Uh, in fact, when, when I was growing up, the, the, the charismatic church I was part of said, made us kind of repeat this uh, little phrase, I am a spirit, have you heard this? I am a soul, I live in a body. And so it was all just chopped up, but of course primacy was to the spirit. So I am a spirit, I have a soul, and I live in a body. The trouble is our experience in real life is that we don't just live in a body. The body is often screaming at us, telling us when we're hungry or tired tempting us with urges so the body doesn't become just this thing that we happen to live in like, uh, you know, like, a, like Robocop in a machine or something, you know? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> we get this sense that real life is more integrated than a chopped up spirit, soul, and body. And we want to know, there's the Bible talk about the body as just something we happen to live in? That our spirits are really what matter? Or does God have anything to say about bodies? What we need desperately in our day is a theology of the body. A theology of the body. You're like, dude, I'd major in that. A A proper way to think theologically about our physical bodies. Corinth, we're in the series here on 1 Corinthians. And Corinth, as we've talked about, was a city that... Uh, you know, that reveled in all kinds of pleasures. They valued people that were successful, but they celebrated sexual pleasure. We know about the two temples. We talked about Apollo's temple that sort of elevated male sexuality. And then you had Aphrodite's temple where it, it paraded girls for, for people to, uh, for lack of a better word, for people to use as part of their worship. Corinth was a city that anything sort of goes. It's, it, it really, there were, there were not a lot of restraints. In fact, there was an ancient Greek comedian. I know you don't think of comedians in the ancient world, but there was a comedian who began to coin the phrase Corinthianize. And Corinthianize became a shorthand for fornication. In fact, a fornication so strange that other cities weren't, it wouldn't have been accepted in other cities. Corinth, before there was Vegas, there was Corinth. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth to Corinthianize. This was the, the way their city kind of worked. And so today we're talking about bodies matter. Bodies matter. 
What does Paul say to these guys? In ancient Greek philosophy, you have, you know, way back even before the time that this letter is written, you have this belief that bodies and souls were separate. That in a sense, the bodies or the material things of this world don't really matter. Matter doesn't matter. And that all that mattered was your soul or your mind, this higher inner sense of being. And so you had one group, the Stoics, who said, well, since all that matters is your soul or your mind, let's put priority into learning the right knowledge, having the right understanding. They they emphasized this. They focused on the soul and the mind, the logos. This was the Stoics' contribution. But you had this other group that drew a very different conclusion. They said, hey, listen, if, if the body doesn't matter, we can do whatever we want. These were the Epicureans, the ones who said pleasure is the ultimate good. Pleasure is the highest good. If, if these things are separate and as long as my mind and my soul is being taken care of, then eat, drink, and be merry because pleasure's fine. It's great. It has no bearing on your soul. There were versions of these philosophies that were still sort of alive in small ways by the time we get to the first century. And so here Paul is knowing that the residue of this, these philosophies are at work in people's minds and he's realizing that his church in Corinth has this tendency to slip into a view of the human being that is a divided being, a being that separates body from soul or body from spirit or body from mind. And Paul's whole theme, if you think about Corinthians, one of his big themes is to put body and spirit back together. You see it really begin to happen in chapter six. Later on, you'll see Paul use the analogy of the body to talk about the church And then finally, at the end of Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the resurrection of the body. All through his letter, he's trying to weave this big theme of saying, listen, you need to put these two things together if you're going to understand them properly. You need to put them together if you're going to understand them properly. As we work through our text, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to start here with um, with verse 12. And we're going to ask ourselves, before we read verse 12, we're going to ask ourselves a few questions along the way. If you're a visual person, you can think of these questions as going from the surface to something at its core. We're going to first say, ask ourselves, how should we live in the body? And then we're going to say, well, maybe in order to deal properly with that, we need to ask what a body is for. And then maybe to deal with that better, we need to ask ourselves, whose body is it? But let's start with this first question. How should we live in the body? Verse 12, he says, all things are lawful for me. Your Bible, I hope, has this phrase in quotation marks because what Paul is doing is he's quoting a Corinthian slogan. This, much like we have, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. This was a slogan in in Corinth where Paul's saying, oh, all things are lawful. Or in some translations, all things are permissible. It's all fine. It's, it's not against the law. I'm not breaking any laws. And Paul says, yeah, but not all things are helpful. And then another slogan, all things are lawful for me. Same slogan, just repeating it again. He says, yes, but I will not be dominated by anything. I think if there were a slogan for our day when it comes to bodies and how we're supposed to live in our bodies, the overriding guiding principle is it's my body and I'm not harming anyone, so why, is it, why do you care? I'm not harming anyone. 
It, it's, it's fine. It's not that big of a deal. All is lawful. All is lawful. That's the Corinthian slogan. Ours is, it's fine. It's not a big deal. I'm not harming anyone. And Paul says, it may be lawful, but it may be less beneficial than you realize. It may be more harmful, to put it in the negative, it may be more harmful than you know. In fact, later on, Paul says this phrase where he says, everyone who sins with sexual sins is sinning against his own body. This is his way of saying, listen, it's not about whether you're harming someone else. Do you realize the harm that you're doing to yourself? There's a lot of writing and research these days that have shown, even from a science perspective, a psychology perspective, the impact of sex on the brain and maybe specifically pornography. And um, it's an interesting conversation because we're starting to see rise to the surface here brain science that says, look what happens to these pathways that get forged. Look how hard you're making it on yourself to change these habits once you start going down a particular way. Recently, a magazine called The New York Magazine had an article called The Porn Myth. I don't know if you saw it. I, I posted a tweet. I tweeted a link to it, but warned that there's, it's sort of adult content in the language of it. But the article is kind of making this case and saying, listen, the myth was that if we freed eros, if we freed our erotic desires and let it have its co- run, run its course, let it do what we want to do, that we would actually strengthen eros. But the writer of this article says, we thought we could free eros. In the end, we diluted it. And talking about how all of these conversations that she's had with young people on college campuses saying it's become harder and harder to create a kind of sexual interest, if you will, because now it's become more extreme. It takes more. Ironically, I read the article online, and if you ever want to proof of the depravity of man, just read internet comments on an online article. And the comments were, you know, all over the place on this article, but this one stood out to me as just something that broke my heart. This man said, so what is the point of having a girlfriend, much less a wife, anymore? They're just not even close to being worth what they cost us. Pornography is almost all of what we need, minus everything we don't want. I'll tell you that as a father of three girls, this is very troubling. As a father of a son, it's troubling. This is no longer a statement made with regret. This is a statement made with brazenness to say, what? I've got just about everything I could need with none of the stuff I don't want. I wonder if Paul was trying to say, listen, you might say it's all permissible, but not all of it is beneficial. And this is going to take a toll on you more than you realize. It might destroy your capacity for intimacy in a way that's going to take a lot of work to recover from. But then he says, okay, all is lawful, all is lawful, all, it's all permissible, it's all fine. He says, yeah, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now we know these studies of the addictiveness, the way it works. With the, I, 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 you know, there's a psychologist that I consulted with over the week, and he sent me just mounds of data that I couldn't even quote to you all this morning. 
But if I'm making sense of it, at least in the, on the surface level, there is a way that it binds us chemically toward n- novelty and newness, to where what was exciting no longer is. Studies have come out sort of confirming this. There was one that, of irony of all ironies that GQ magazine quoted. It said, for those addicted to porn, arousal actually declined with the same mate. Conversely, after giving up masturbation and porn, 60% felt that sex improved. Shocking. More disturbingly, 25% of those who watch porn admit to feeling controlled by sexual desires. 64% 64 report that their tastes eventually become more and more deviant. It starts as like a curiosity becomes harder and harder to satiate. And so Paul says in verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. It's interesting because there are many other New Testament passages with many other sins that Paul says, stand against it, resist. But there's one sin that Paul says, don't even bother. Just get the heck out of there. And it's sexual immorality. That's why our Old Testament reading was Joseph saying, forget the coat, I'm out of here. There's some things that we say, you know, I, I just don't mess around with that. And I've said this before, but I, I think there maybe there's this illusion that you say, well, I'm a Christian, so I shouldn't deal with this temptation, so I don't need covenant eyes, I don't need, uh, you know, locks on the TV, I don't need accountability when I go on business trips, I'm fine, I'm a Christian, if I just prayed hard enough, I wouldn't be, I don't think, I think Paul's saying the opposite. <laughs> I think Paul's saying, because you're a Christian, Put everything around your life that helps you flee from those situations. If it means putting locks on your TV, put locks on your TV, not like padlocks, you know what I mean, digital locks. <laughs> Maybe padlocks, I don't know. <laughs> if you need covenant eyes, use covenant eyes. If you, need, if, if you want to, you know, do this. And there's, a, there's so much more we can say about the hopeful road to recovery. <clears throat> there is hope beyond this. What we're starting with today is just Paul saying, look, when I say to flee, when Christians say we flee, it's not because we're prudes, it's because we realize in the end we're doing damage to ourselves. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. How are we to live in our bodies? We are to flee sexual immorality. That's only part of the answer, though, isn't it? Because we've got to push a little deeper and ask our second question, what is the body even for? What is the body for? Why, why are we having this conversation? Are, is this just sort of, did someone make this up arbitrarily? And Paul says in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Here again, in your Bible, it should put this phrase in quotes because this is another slogan. The slogan is, hey man, food was made for me <laughs> and my stomach was made for food. In other words, look, look if, if it didn't, if I wasn't, If this didn't feel so good, obviously it would be dangerous, but obviously it feels good, so it must be right. I was made to have sex. You guys are like, whoa. That's the slogan of Paul's day. Pleasure is what the body was made for. Stop being, stop telling us to to shut that down. And Paul says, yeah, sure. And God will destroy both, one and the other. And then he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Sadly, when the church has tried to answer the question of what is sex for, 
This is an oversimplistic way of reviewing our history, but we first began by saying, well, sex is, is pure function. It's, it's for procreation. And then there's kind of this, you know, swing on the other side. It says, well, it's okay. It's, it's for pleasure, too. And so there's a book that came out in the 70s, a Christian book, Intended for Pleasure. This whole thing was sex is for pleasure, too. Great, wonderful. The trouble is neither address the deeper question of what is the body for? Is the body just for pleasure and procreation? Or is the body for the Lord? Because if you don't go higher and say, well, what is the body even for? Then even Christians will end up with this place where we say, well, sex is for pleasure and the body is for pleasure. And so let's have a a Christian conference on how to have the best sex of your life. And there are plenty And sadly, this is all the church has had to say about it, is to say, well, we want to teach you. you But it's all operating from the same premise, and the premise is the body is for pleasure. So let's maximize pleasure. Paul says you're missing something deeper than that. Because sex is not an end in itself. If the body is just for pleasure, then sex is an end in itself. Then all of the books should just be about how to have better sex. You're like, Really, there are books like that? Christian ones? <laughs> but if the body is not for pleasure, but if the body is for the Lord, then sex is not an end in itself, is it? It becomes a means to something else. And we'll get to that more next week. Verse 14, Paul says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Okay. We said the creed this morning. We've been saying it every week. One of the last lines says, We, we believe in the resurrection of the body that's a real thing that's something we're looking forward to in the future let me say this clearly that's something everyone who is in heaven right now is looking forward to sometimes you hear your worst theology of the body at funerals because at funerals people say silly things like oh i bet he's dancing and running and 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 free and how amazing to have his new body he doesn't have his new body This person is at peace and at rest with Christ. But what the Bible clearly says is there's a resurrection of the body that's coming beyond heaven. N.T. Wright calls this life after life after death. (laughs) So everybody's obsessed with heaven is for real and we're going to float on clouds. Heaven is for real. real." Look, heaven's for real, but it's not the end. The end is a new, renewed creation, a renewed material creation. In fact, the picture at the end of Revelation is a picture of heaven descending into earth and it becoming new. That God is not the God who says physical things are bad and I can't wait to get you out of those stupid physical things and get you to my place where we can be free-floating spirits. That God never says that. That the body was actually made for glory. The body was made for glory. I love this. Imagine this. That your skin and bones are just the temporary taste of what a renewed, resurrected body will be. A glorified body is what theologians have called it. You're justified. You're being sanctified. You're waiting to be glorified. The body is made for glory. And then he goes on and says, Oh, do you not know? That he who is joined to the prostitute becomes one body with her, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So it's not just made for glory, it's also made for intimacy. The oneness of this. 
If we were to answer this question, what is the body for? We would say, what is the body for? The body is for glory and for intimacy. It's for glory and for intimacy. And we'll get into this next week, but sex becomes not an end in itself, but sex becomes a means toward intimacy. The joining of two lives. And next week we're going to say, what is strong enough to hold that kind of intimacy. We'll get to that next week. Today we want to say the body is for glory and for intimacy. And now we have to get to the bottom of this whole discussion and say, well, whose body is it? Whose body is it? It's interesting because in Paul's day, it seemed like maybe they dismissed that altogether. It doesn't matter whose body it is, just do whatever you want with it. It's mine, it's yours, it's his, it's hers, who cares? In the pre-enlightenment world, they divided the body and the soul and they said the church is in charge of the care of souls, but the state will be in charge of the care of bodies. And this begins the enlightenment separation where it says we'll make laws only when it affects what's done in bodies. And so if you harm someone's body, oh, the state says, oh, sorry, you can't do that. But the state won't come in and say, but if you sin in your soul. Now, I'm not asking for the state to have more power. I'm just telling you that when it comes to God, both are God's jurisdiction. The body and the soul. Jesus says this when he says, don't fear the one who can destroy the body only, but the one who destroys body and the soul. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6 For those of you that that care about seeing the whole context just a little bit more, the chapter opens with Paul talking about not dragging one another to court. What in the world does that have to do with sex and bodies? You know what he's saying? The kinds of courts he was talking about are the kinds of courts where corruption was at, at play. And Paul's saying, listen, you think that some things are the church's jurisdiction and some things are the state's jurisdiction, and I want to tell you, it's all God's jurisdiction. It's all God's. And that saying yes to Jesus is more than just getting your soul saved. It's getting your body reclaimed. And so he begins to say, Who, whose body is this? It's not yours. It's not the state's. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Skip down to verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A few weeks ago, we talked about the verse where Paul said, you, plural you, the whole church is the temple. Now, a few chapters later, Paul's saying, okay, not just the plural you, but actually the individual you as well. That when you come to Christ, your very body becomes a temple. Now, temples don't mean much to us in America because we don't have temples. We don't think of temples as being, it just doesn't register. But in the ancient world, world, temples were sacred places. Sacred places. In fact, for many of these temples, even the ones in Corinth, nobody could afford to put guards around them to watch at night and day. You just couldn't afford to do that. But you needed some way of keeping people from destroying these temples because there were precious things in there. And they wanted people to know it was sacred. So you know what they would do with these ancient temples? They would put inscriptions on it. Pictures of the gods. They would put statues in it. They would put inscriptions that said, to anyone who destroys this temple, this God will destroy you. 
And so there was this fear and reverence about saying, hey, this temple belongs to that God. You better not mess with it. Now think about what that means about us. And Paul's saying, hey, 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 her body is not an object. Her body is sacred. Her body is holy. Don't you do that. Don't you turn her or him into an object. They're holy. When we say the body is the Lord's, it's not a ha-ha, mine. It's God saying holy. Holy. It's sacred. Imagine what it meant for young, young believers in Corinth trying to get their brains around this. Wait, you're telling me my body is holy and his body is holy and her body is holy and, and what? You're telling me that it's a temple? I know what temples are. Temples are, whoa, awe-inspiring and sacred and, and we almost sort of bow before, are you telling me that to look at another believer is to treat their body in a sacred way? Yeah. Now that's a game changer. Because now we don't just have a new sexual ethic. Now we have a theology of the body. Now we have a view of the body that says that person's body is not an object to be used. It is a temple to revere. It's something to treat with holiness, to say this is God's. This is God's inscription on it. This is God's image impressed on it. This is why Christians rise up against sex trafficking. It's because we say, wait a minute, you can't treat another person's body like that. This is why Christians say, no, we're going to work to stop that. But I want to tell you, it's not just in the causes that we sign up for, but it's in the everyday interaction with one another. That every body you see on a screen at home alone Something in you needs to rise up and say, God's will for this person's body is that it be holy. I don't want to treat it like an object. Now some of you hear this and you say, well, too late. Too late. Because I've done that. I've done that. Or some of you will say, and I've had that done to me. I believe the lie that In order to be loved, I needed to let him or let her treat me like an object. And I thought that that was how I could really find intimacy in this life. And I I think you're right. I found it doesn't work. But now I just feel full of shame. And now I feel stuck. And some of you are sitting here and you're thinking that. Is there a way out? Is there hope beyond this? Is the gospel just a word that says, wow, you really messed that up? Or does the gospel have a hopeful word for us? In this same chapter in verse 9, Paul says, don't you know that the people who are unjust won't inherit God's kingdom? And he goes on and on. He says, don't be deceived. And he has this list here. Paul is famous for lists in his letters. 
those who are sexually immoral, those who worship false gods, adulterers, participants in same-sex intercourse, thieves, the greedy, drunks, abusive people, swindlers won't inherit God's kingdom. And you're thinking, oh, Paul, why are you doing this? Is this about judging the world? And he says, no, 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 that's what some of you used to be. It's maybe the most hopeful line in the whole chapter. What some of you used to be. It's not who you are anymore, is it? It says, but you were washed clean. You were made holy to God. And you were made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. What Paul is saying is everything that you've done in the body or just in your mind, all the things that you've done, listen, it is not the end of the story. It can be what you used to be. It doesn't need to be what you are. What you are, who you are, can be the person who's washed, the person who's clean, the person in whom Jesus and the Spirit of God are at work, the person who's been set right. What did Jesus do for us? A few months ago, we celebrated Christmas, the incarnation. It's by the incarnation that Jesus says, No, no, bodies are not evil. Bodies matter. I'm going to take on a body. It's by the incarnation that God says, I'm not interested in just saving your soul. I'm interested in reclaiming your body. By the incarnation, our bodies are reclaimed. By his death and resurrection, we are redeemed. Redeemed. Bought. Taken back. I love the redemption image because Paul's just told us how sin can become bondage and binding. And redemption is the image that says you are loose now. You are freed now. First Corinthians six seventeen, last verse. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. If we want to know how intimacy with our bodies gets realigned, there's no doubt there's a journey that follows. Many, much of it might involve recovery groups, or working with counselors. But do you know where it begins? It begins when you get set in right intimacy with God. St. Augustine said, sin is not simply desiring the wrong things. Sin is desiring the right things wrongly. And when it comes to our bodies and intimacy, this is what we've done. We've desired the right things. I want to be loved. I want to be accepted. I want to be intimate. But I didn't realize I was desiring it wrongly. And Paul says, you can be washed. You can be reclaimed. You can be redeemed. You can be set right so that intimacy with God begins to set your whole life into alignment. Christian morality is not some arbitrary ethic by prudish people. It is God, a loving God, saying, can I put you back together again? Will you let me put you back together again? I know the brokenness that's been done to you. I know the brokenness that has come from you. But will you let me put you back together again? We pray this morning.